We are going to continue our series from the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, open up to Esther. Esther is right before Job. So if you kind of open to the middle and turn left past Job and get to Esther, chapter 2. I'm really aware of my need this morning. I'm always aware of it, but I'm particularly this morning. So would you join me as I pray? Lord, I pray that as I open your word, that you would open our hearts, Lord. I know that as I preach, I preach to myself, I preach to all of us, Lord. And I pray that you would be able to work through my many limitations and frailties, Lord. I pray that we would see you, Jesus, in this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to keep going, to keep following hard after you. I pray, Lord, that that these... That, that as we visit ancient Persia, that we would understand and learn how to live as exiles for your kingdom and not the kingdom we inhabit, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, we were treated in Esther chapter 1 to the inner workings of this Xerxes or Ahasuerus. I say Xerxes because it's a little bit easier to say. It's the same person. Um, The Xerxes-led Persian court. And it's kind of like a tabloid story. It's a story that was not very savory. Uh, Today, though, we get to meet two of our heroes in the rest of this book, Mordecai and Esther. These are the heroes that are going to deliver the Jews from certain death. I must tell you at the front, they are both plainly and at times painfully flawed. They were members of God's kingdom, but they became very comfortable in exile. They were, remember, exiles far from home, and at key moments that we'll see in chapter 2 of Esther, they were assimilated into the culture instead of standing out from the culture. There were key moments where you would want Esther or Mordecai to stand up and say, no, I am a follower of God Most High. I refuse to compromise. Esther never does that. Neither does Mordecai. In fact, the name of God does not appear anywhere in this book. Esther, though, serves as a deliverer for her people. We're going to see today the beginning of Esther's story, and we're going to find that though she delivers God's people In some ways, she's a disappointment. She's a disappointing deliverer. Yes, there are mitigating circumstances, but the fact remains, there's many times she is disappointing. And we can become... So let's look at Esther chapter 2. We're going to look into the mirror as we go way back, 2,500 years, to the bustling Persian capital of Susa. Our narrator is going to zoom in on these comfortable exiles, Mordecai and Esther, and we need to, I need to warn you at the front, this story will probably make you uncomfortable with some of Esther's choices. Heads up. You have kids? Heads up. Last week, we witnessed Vashti's understandable refusal to be paraded in front of a mass of drunken men. For that, she lost her place as queen. Now, the search is on as Esther chapter 1 verse 19 says, to find another who is better than she. And so we're going to take this story in chunks. Esther chapter 1 verse, sorry, Esther chapter 2 verse 1. 
After these things, that's when Vashti was deposed, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So here King Xerxes starts to pine for Vashti. He remembered her and he begins to have regrets at the way he was so hasty in sending her away. And so the king, he's got servant boys surrounding him at his continual beck and call, and these boys see that the king is down, so they suggest a plan. Verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him. Now, think about what a plan a young man, not saved, doesn't follow Jesus. What kind of plan is a young man who is, who, it, what, he, what is he going to come up with to find a new queen? A young man. Think teenagers. Think young people, not married. How is this, how are these young men going to find a new queen? Well, like this. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, they say. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let her cosmetics be given them. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So do you hear what the young men are saying? Let's have a beauty contest. Let's get the hottest woman up in here to be your queen. See, that's what teenage boys are going to come up with. And what does the king do? The king goes, yeah, sounds like a good plan. So this king deputizes, these boys deputize themselves to come up with this plan. And normally kings, they marry women from aristocratic families and make political alliances in marriage at this time. Queens were normally of the nobility class, but not this time. This time, this plan hatched by the servant boys is something like, hey, send out eunuchs to find the prettiest girls in your kingdom, and you can have your pick. You can pick the one that pleases you the most. So the only criteria for the prospective queen of the whole land is threefold. Beautiful, young, virgin. So, armed with the most superficial of criteria, Xerxes and his people, or Xerxes' people fan out across the empire, sweeping from all 127 provinces, women, the prettiest women of the provinces, to come to Susa to be put into the citadel or the harem of the king. And so the narrator zooms in on one small Jewish family, this is the first introduction to our heroes, our deliverers, and we need to take some time with them. Let's look at verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadazah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had never had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So a few things we need to know about Mordecai. He's a descendant of Kish, 
of the house of Benjamin. This means he's of somewhat Jewish nobility. He's from the house of Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel, he is related here to Mordecai. This means that he was of the first wave of people who were exiled or taken out of Jerusalem and deported to Babylon. One hundred years prior, his ancestors were carried away with Jeconah, the king of Judah, in the first captivity. This is what 2 Kings 24 tells us. He, Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all officials, all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Mordecai's people were at least of the artisan craft class, and he was taken away early. Now, there's something else you should know about Mordecai. is This, this is a distinctively non-Jewish name. He is named after the Babylonian god Marduk. We might roughly translate Mordecai's name into English as something like Marduk man. So this isn't Yahweh man. This isn't God, God's man. This is Marduk's man. Marduk was the storm god of Babylon, and they believed him to be the Lord of all gods of heaven and on earth, above all others. This is what the Babylonians believed. Now, did his parents give him this name because they thought it was cool? Because it sounded neat, like we might maybe name our kids Thor? We don't know. But one thing is sure, the original Jewish listeners, when they hear the name Mordecai, they think, sell out. Here's somebody who's way too comfortable in Persia. He's got a sell out name. This is disappointing, they would have thought. Now, most people at the time had two different names. If you're Jewish, you have a Gentile name and a Jewish one. Remember, if you know the story of Daniel, Daniel has two names. Daniel has his Jewish name, Daniel, and his his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Now, we only know Mordecai's Gentile name. All we know is that this guy is Marduk man. Remember that. File it away. Could it be a subtle way that that the author is telling us that Mordecai is too assimilated in the culture of Persia? Maybe, probably, we'll see, especially next week. Next, we have Hadassah, that is Esther. Now, Esther, we get two names. Hadassah means myrtle, which is an evergreen shrub that thrives in warmer climates all over the world. The myrtle bush is renowned for its sweet smell and pleasing blooms. But she's also named Esther. This was after the Babylonian goddess of love and war, Ishtar. But we're told both of her names. It's as if the author is telling us in a real subtle way, listen, this character is both Hadassah and Esther. She's stuck between two worlds. She's stuck between two different allegiances. Sometimes she's going to act like Hadassah and sometimes she's going to act like Esther. You know what I mean. Chapter 2, Esther takes center stage. 
But we must be careful not to be too hard on this heroine because there are some mitigating factors to consider. She was an orphan. She had no father, no mother, and Mordecai agreed to raise her. Who knows what Mordecai trained her? In, in, who knows if Mordecai trained her in the Bible? Who knows if Mordecai even had a copy of the Torah? We don't know. We also need to recognize that they are still in Susa because 50 years prior to the events of chapter 2, Cyrus the Great, which is Xerxes' grandfather, declared that all the Jews could go home to Jerusalem, and yet they're still here. This is the, this is the decree in Ezra chapter 1. Thus says the king of, the, Cyrus the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of, kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar gets this clear. Mordecai doesn't so much, but Nebuchadnezzar does. Then he rose, then rose up the, the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. It appears God did not stir the spirit of Esther's ancestors or Mordecai's ancestors. They waved goodbye to all their family as they went back to Jerusalem. And Esther and Mordecai and their people are still in Persia. They chose to remain in a self-imposed exile. Now keep this in mind. When all the Jews in Persia are threatened in chapter 3, we could assume it was their punishment for remaining in exile. It, we could assume this is what they deserve, but that's not the way it ends up happening. See, what Mordecai and Esther have is a complicated birthright. Who knows what they understood? Who knows whether they knew, well, surely they knew about Cyrus's decree. Why they didn't go back, who knows? We don't, we're not given a reason. But clearly, Mordecai has power in this kingdom. It could be that Mordecai was Marduk's man, and he didn't want to go home. He wanted to live the good life in Persia and, and live the good life in Susa. And our, our narrator wants us to understand that th this, is, this is a difficult time for them to be living. But he also wants us to understand that Esther was very pleasing to look at, which means that the, the boys around the king were going to sweep her up into his harem. So we can predict what comes next. Look at verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman, woman pleased and won his favor. That's Haggai, the, the chief eunuch. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So Esther is taken to be in the harem of the king. This text gives us no indication that it is against her will. We are left having to guess. We do not know for sure. Now, Esther sure seems to know the score, though. She wins the favor of the chief eunuch, Haggai, who is the leader of the harem of women. 
So she gets special cosmetics. I don't know, Max Factor or whatever. She gets whatever they are. And she gets those. And she gets food. Now, remember at this time, most people were hand-to-mouth. And so what, what folks, what, what was more appealing to the king would have been a woman with some meat on her bones. And so this one year's worth of, of beautification would have been, in a sense, to clear her skin of whatever blemishes would, were there and then have her gain some weight. And so we have two things that show up in our passage that we should scratch our heads at. First, intermarriage, right? Esther is Jewish. And she's brought into the harem of a pagan king. It's frowned upon in the Old Testament for Jews to marry uncircumcised pagans, but yet the winner of the prize here gets to be queen and she has to be married to an uncircumcised fool. Secondly, unclean food. Now, if you remember the story in Daniel, Daniel, when he was given unclean meat from the king's table, he and his friends refused to defile themselves. Remember that? They are granted the ability to eat vegetables and miraculously they remain strong and healthy. Esther makes no such request. She seems to go on and go along with the unclean food without compunction. It's disappointing. She also goes along with the counsel of her uncle. Verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai says, listen, do not tell them you are a Jew. We don't totally know why. Later, Haran's going to rise up and he's going to want to kill all the Jews. But at this point in the story, we don't know of any overt anti-Semitism. We're left to wonder why Mordecai would, would command Esther not to communicate her Jewish heritage. We'll have to file that away for next week and the week after. But why did she eat the food that was defiled? This, this made her ritually unclean. Now, we might not think a big deal about this, but a Jewish person eating defiled food is a big deal she didn't seem to mind at all. She didn't seem to mind at all, and she seemed to just fit right in. And in fact, nobody, she, she would have to tell someone she was Jewish because she wasn't acting Jewish. She was willing, with all the other girls, to line up and try to marry this pagan king and become queen of the land. And so she would eat anything, do anything, be anything she had to be in order to win the prize. Next comes the contest rules for the queen. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, 12 months of beautification, ladies, 12 months, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody 
of Shagahaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So, here's what's going on. For 12 months, each contestant was treated with wildly extravagant beautification programs. Much of what the narrator points out is that the women were given spices so that they might smell better. They were, their bodies were treated with those kinds of spices. Now, that might sound strange, but if we were transported back into the ancient world, the thing that would assail us most is the smell. Many of the common folk would have smelled like the devil because they never bathe. And so, what? They didn't shower regularly. And, and, and so what this regimen of oil and myrrh and all of this clears the deck of all that foul smell and goes quite a, quite a bit beyond it. And it also gives the girls more to eat so they might gain a bit of weight to please the king. Now, after this beautification process, each girl would spend the night with the king to try to win him with her sexual prowess. And it's a one-time shot. If the king does not call her back, she would not go home back where she was from. She would be relegated to a second-class wife to become a concubine. So, you see what this is? This isn't just a beauty contest. This is a one-night stand contest. And Esther doesn't stand up and go, no, no, no! She takes her turn. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had, in charge, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. See, the, what, what the head eunuch would do would be to suggest what a woman might take in with her to please the king and win the king in this one-night-stand contest. I, for one, am grateful that we do not know what she took in there. Golden retriever puppies? Probably not. Pepperoni pizza, maybe a coloring book? That's probably not what she did. I'm grateful that the authors don't tell us what she took in to win the king with her sexual prowess. But we do know that whatever she did, well, she won the contest which is disappointing. She's not married to this guy. He's not a Jew. And we go, that's not the best. Esther, it's a little disappointing. Verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, four years after the Vashti experience in chapter 1, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther wins the one-night stand contest. Hold your applause. See, clearly we see the problem with the arrangement. Esther is not yet married, but she's, circum she's 
sleeping with an uncircumcised pagan. Some might say this is not bad because she had no choice and this was marriage in the Persian way. I'm not so sure. Even if this was a sanctioned marriage, it was unbiblical. This is not Queen Esther of your Sunday school flannel graph days. This is much messier. So let's take stock in where we are. Mordecai and Esther, Marduk man and Ishtar girl, are in a place they should not be. Esther keeps her true identity secret. Esther wins a one-night stand contest and becomes queen. Way back in Exodus 19, the Lord told Israel how they should conduct themselves in the world. He said, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Meaning, they were to represent the Lord to all the nations of the world and be set apart, be different. How's it going in Esther chapter 2? How are the Jewish people doing in Esther chapter 2 as represented by Mordecai and Esther? Poorly. Poorly. Disappointing. There's not much representing of God going on here. The whole saga seems to be a cesspool of nastiness. Esther won, but at what cost? Now a happy king made for happy times in Persia. How? Look at verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Yay! But all is not right in Persia. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, that means after they failed to win, win the king's favor, save Esther, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai does something that's heroic. He uncovers a plot that, to murder the king. Now, the king must be a really bad guy, because eunuchs are known for being very mild-mannered. And yet, this king has enraged two eunuchs, two people who have no testosterone pulsating through their veins. That's how bad of a king he is, that he wants that those two guys decide, we're going to get him. Well... Mordecai exposes the plot, and they're killed. Now, where are we left with this, let's be honest, kind of yucky story? It's not exactly what you think about when you think, let's go to church and hear about one night stands with a queen that I thought was something different than she was. 
See, we have Mordecai and Esther who are fully assimilated. They were in the Persian world and they were both of the Persian world as well. They faced a moral dilemma and they didn't seem to blink or look back. And they played all their cards to get ahead in the Persian society. They make a bad string of bad choices. Duguid gives some helpful advice to help us get on the right track when he says, Esther is certainly not a model for us in her compromise. Yet we should not miss the fact that her history of compromise and sin will not disqualify her from the opportunity for later obedience, an obedience that will bring blessing to her people. As the book of Esther continues to unfold, Esther and Mordecai, as compromised as they are, will become the instruments of God's rescue for God's people. Esther would rise to become queen over the whole land, and God uses Esther to deliver his people, not because of who she is, but despite who she is. This is the truth that we see throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end. God uses compromised people to be instruments of his rescue for his people. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see this in Joseph. We see this in Moses. We see this in Joshua. We see this in all the judges. We see this in Samuel, David, Elijah, Nehemiah, and here in Esther. Each time, these heroes, these deliverers are flawed. And woefully flawed. And flawed so much that you think, how can God use them? Exactly. That's what we're meant to say when we read Esther chapter 2. Every deliverer we read in the Bible is flawed. But there was this one time. And there was only one time. There was a man who was exiled from his homeland by choice. He left the peace and security of his blissful, perfect home to go on a journey no one would ever willingly undertake, but he did. He went further than anyone could ever imagine. He went, though he was the eternal one, he wrapped himself in frail human flesh and became a baby boy. He did not win the favor of others by doing what they expected. He did not win the favor of his father by compromising himself. No, he remained steadfast. He remained faithful always, even under the harshest condition. Esther was put in a difficult situation in the harem of a pagan king, but this man was put in a much more difficult situation. He was asked to be completely faithful in thought, in word, in deed, in exile the whole time. He was not invited into any palace, but during his ministry, he lived without a home ever of his own. He became king, not by winning the favor of any human authority. Rather, he won. He earned the favor of God by his obedience. He never compromised. He never assimilated. He never fell short. He never disappointed. And this one king became king by dying, rising, and ascending to the right hand of the Father on high. And he is reigning over the entire universe now. Stories like Esther should cause us to look to Jesus, who is the only human and divine hero we can trust completely. All heroes, all leaders, all deliverers fall short. 
So we must trust Jesus like no one else in our life. All heroes, all deliverers, all leaders fall short with only one exception. Jesus is the only one we can entrust our whole life to. Part of what it means to be human is to desire to follow a capable leader, to want to be a part of something bigger, led by, something who you, led by someone who you trust. Every person in this world wants to follow a capable leader, whether you want to recognize it or not. But every person in this world, every boss, every pastor, every dad, every governor, every mom, every CEO, every manager, every dad, every president are disappointing. And too many of us put too much faith in men and women and not enough faith in Jesus Christ. And when they stumble, stumble, and they surely will, we are crushed. See, we read Esther chapter 2. We're meant to say, we need a better deliverer than her. See, when our leaders stumble, and this is why we need to be careful who we invest our hope in, who we invest our trust in, it's a fact of life that we must follow frail human leaders. But we never should follow anyone like we follow Jesus. Because we can entrust ourselves to Jesus without reserve, without the hint of any reserve. And we must trust Jesus in this way. And we must not trust any other person that way. It doesn't mean you go around and tell people, I don't really trust you. But it does mean that we trust Jesus more than anyone else in our lives. Here's the truth. It's more natural in our lives, in this world, to entrust ourselves to people here. And trust Jesus less. There's no one like Jesus. See, every person in this room, every person on this planet will disappoint you like Esther disappointed us. Every person, every single deliverer will do just that. But not Jesus. Jesus cannot disappoint us. We can freely entrust ourselves to Jesus, heart and soul, without reserve knowing that he will not disappoint us. We can trust other people, but entrust ourselves completely to Jesus. How? We need to work at it. We need to work at it. We have to train our minds to trust Jesus most. It's natural to trust people and question Jesus. But we need to train our minds to trust Jesus most. One of the obstacles I face personally in my life is that I have a better memory for disappointments and hardships than I do blessings. I have a better memory of disappointments and hardships and resentments than I do blessings that I've received from the Lord. I'm more apt in my remaining sin to replay the disappointments I've had with people or the resentments that I can carry around very easily in my head over and over and over again 
And I know I don't put on I don't put on replay the blessings I've received from the Lord. If you have a three-year-old, you know they want to watch the same show over and over and over. And you think, my goodness, for the love of all creation, why are we watching this again? But we do the exact same thing when it comes to our hardships and disappointments and resentments. I know that about myself, and I also know that I'm not alone. We have to fight to remember. We have to fight to remember that we can entrust ourselves to Jesus. Friends, we have to remember each day that Jesus knows everything about you, all you've ever done in thought and word and deed. He knows all you will ever do in thought and word and deed. He knows all the ways that you will fall short in thought and word and deed. And guess what? He still loves you. <laughs> That's astounding. You don't have any friends like that. You don't have any spouses like that. You don't have any family like that. There's nobody who knows about you what Jesus knows about you. And yet, he does not send you away. He sees you at your worst and loves you to the end and beyond. This Jesus daily blesses you. He refuses to give you what you deserve. He never sends you away. He's always praying for you. You don't have to ask him to pray for you or to carry you on his heart. He is always talking, praying, talking to the Lord, praying for you as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Your name is, not, is never off his lips. He's always interceding for you. He has a mission to make you like him. He has, he has preserved you, Christian, this far. And he will continue to preserve you. And he is actively working in and for and through you right now. All leaders, heroes, and deliverers will fall short and be disappointing. But not Jesus. He's the only one we can entrust ourselves to. Another thing we learned from Esther 2 is that we will all fall short even as we follow hard after Jesus. See, the people God saves never deserve it. The people God uses are never exactly what they should be. The people God uses, rescues are compromised. We see this in Esther, and we see this in us. We Christians, though we are saved by grace, we can see a resemblance of ourselves to Esther and Mordecai in this passage, can't we? There are times we can look back and know that we have fallen short. There are times we have made bad choices. There are times that we acted the fool. There are many times that we have been entrenched in sin. There have been so many times that we've been comfortable in the exile, that we've given in, that we resembled the world more than we resembled Jesus, that we loved our reputation more than we loved Jesus, that we loved money or the pursuit of money more than we loved Jesus. We all fall short. But the good news for any who are in Christ is that failure is never permanent. Failure is never permanent. God, in his mercy, rescues the failed and the flawed and the broken. In short, he rescues us. Friends, we're not delivered because we're good. We're not delivered because we're obedient. 
We're not delivered because we always took the right stand. We're not delivered because we found our way. We're delivered because He is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love for us when we don't deserve it. See, that's the nature of our salvation. Our rescue is not based on our worthiness or our obedience, even as saved saints. We know all the parts of our life that fall so woefully short. But our deliverer, our deliverer can be trusted to save us to the uttermost, even when we don't obey to the uttermost. Even if you, maybe you're sitting here and you're considering how you're living this world, in this world, and you think you, you might, you're, you're like the Marduk man here. Your life, if you look at it, bears more resemblance to the world around you than the Lord you say you follow. See, the blessing we have in this moment is that we can come to a gracious Father by means of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death has opened a way and His life has secured that way so that we can come to Him, ask forgiveness, repent, and be restored. And that can happen for anyone. Whether you're a Christian who's backslidden or someone who's not following Jesus at all, you can come to Him and He will not send you away. Because like I said before, Jesus is the only person you can entrust yourself to completely. This is what John Newton said of himself, and I think we can all relate. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil. I, will, I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality. With mortality, all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's who we are today. Friends, we are all in need of grace. All of our heroes, leaders and deliverers, fall short, except Jesus. We will all fall short even though we follow hard after Jesus. And friends, God is not like Ahasuerus, content to use you up and cast you aside. Do you notice all these women collected from all the provinces around his whole empire, 127? If they did not please him, they were sent away, never to be seen again. God is not like that. God is not like that. Now, some of you here might think that because of your past or because of the way you've compromised that you're damaged goods, that there's no way the Lord could use you, that you have been compromised too much, that you have sold your integrity too often, that you have made a royal mess of things. Well, maybe you have. But friends, let me introduce you to the grace of God. The grace of God can surmount any failure that anybody carried into this room today. There is no one who can sin too far from his reach. No matter who you are or where you've been. 
See, this is why we, if you're not a Christian, this is why we Christians can freely entrust ourselves to Jesus. He will not send us away. He will not send us on our way. He will always welcome us back, even though we fail, even though we fall, even though we, even though we turn our back on Him. He will come and grab us and hold us and keep us. Friend, one of the reasons we are reading Esther and studying Esther is because is because the people in the Old Testament are just like us. Failed, flawed, broken, troubled. They make choices where you go, ugh. You know what? If the Lord, and he will use Esther and Mordecai, he uses them for his purposes, he can use you too. He, he will not just use you up and cast you aside. If Jesus is your Savior and you have put faith in him, you can know for sure and for certain he will accomplish his will in you. His purpose for you and in you will not be wasted. You can rest assured that's what's happening. You can rest assured that that is true. Jesus is not like Ahasuerus. Our worldly leaders might be disappointing, but Jesus never is. Friends, we can entrust ourselves completely to Jesus. Let's pray. Would I pray for any here who are Christians and are convicted with the way they've been living of late, I pray that they would want to put their faith in you again and trust you and come back to you and be welcomed back into your arms knowing that though we sin, you always welcome us home. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that for those who, who feel like they've fallen short or maybe they really have. Lord, I also pray for those here who are not Christians, Lord. I pray though, that you would help them to put their faith in you. I pray that they would... They would trust you knowing that there is no other place in this world for them to give the best of themselves, to give all of themselves, but to you. And so, Lord, these are things that we need your Holy Spirit to work in and through folks in this room, and I pray that you would do just that, Lord. I pray for those that are broken by sin. I pray they would turn to you. I pray for those that have broken others with their sin, that they would turn to you. I pray for those who feel like they're so compromised, so dirty, so disqualified. I pray they would turn to you. Jesus, thank you for persevering, for making it through. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what we could never do so that we might be able to have an eternal, forever security in you. I pray also, Lord, that we would be a people who trust you most. May we not put our faith in human leaders. May we not put our faith in princes. May we not put our faith in presidents or bosses or managers. But may we only invest ourselves and the best of ourselves and our faith into you, Jesus. Because only you 
will not disappoint. Jesus, thank you for thank you for not having a story about yourself like Esther chapter 2. Thank you that you were faithful to the end and beyond. So that we, though we are unfaithful, can be saved and have an eternal hope. And in your mighty name we pray. Amen.